Faye, in this era of rapidly changing practice with respect to COVID, I am so happy that I have a continued subscription to the OBG project. Definitely. I have really appreciated my OBG First subscription as well because I get a lot of my information actually from my phone. And so when they email me and I'm able to rapidly click on those articles and read them before they go away, that really allows me to continue to stay up to date on everything that's going on. And it's even beyond just COVID, right? They send us summaries of the latest and greatest and randomized trials for obstetrics, gynecology, and primary care, as well as other interesting articles that, hey, that just may be relevant to my practice or just something fun to know. So if you're a fourth-year resident like Nick and I, you can get one year of subscription to OBG First absolutely free. And we have actually gone beyond our first year, and I have continued to subscribe to uh, the OBG Project and OBG First just because I think that it is so helpful for my current practice and for my learning. All right, guys, welcome back. This is Nick. This is Faye. And this is Creogs Over Coffee. Coffee. Today's episode is going to be kind of a long one. It may be tough to follow along, so we definitely recommend breaking out the reading to go along with it, talking about alloimmunization. So, Faye, what are our learning objectives for today? So today we're going to discuss the basics of blood groups and alloimmunization. We're going to review the consequences of maternal alloimmunization on neonatal health. And then finally, we're going to outline prevention strategies for uh, rhesus D alloimmunization in the United States and the benefits of anti-D immunoglobulin administration, also known as Rogam. So Nick, talk to me a little bit about the basics of blood groups. I mean, there's like or blood types, right? Like how hard can that be? Yeah, I wish it was that simple, Faye, but really when we say the basics of blood groups, I don't know if there really are basics. This is really confusing. I didn't know this, but there are actually over 36 different blood group systems for human blood that exist. But the most commonly used are the ABO system that we know and then the rhesus or RH blood group system. Even within that, I didn't know that the rhesus system alone has over 40 different blood group antigens that it categorizes. Of these, the most important are capital D, capital C, little c, capital E, and little e. There actually is no little d. So, But capital D, or D, what we'll say for the rest of the podcast, is what we most commonly hear of. And this is the one that you think of if someone is RH positive, that's a positive D antigen that they express on their red blood cells. In particular, RHD and then RH little c group antigens confer a significant risk for something called a hemolytic disease of the newborn, um, which is a complication we'll discuss more later on in the podcast. Talking a little bit more about RHD status, negative status is definitely in the minority, but is much more common amongst white persons, about 15%. In contrast, about 5 to 8% of black persons and 1 to 2% of Asians and Native Americans will be RH negative. In white RHD positive individuals, about 60% of them are heterozygotes and 40% are homozygotes at the D locus. Moving beyond the RH system, as we said, there are a bunch of other categorizations for blood group antigens, and there are a number of other significant or common antigens that you might encounter in clinical practice. You might hear these as Lewis antibodies, which get broken down into LEA and LEB antigens, I antigens, which 
both of these categories are actually of no clinical consequence. And then another one that you probably commonly hear of are Kell antigens, which are of really significant clinical consequence. Practice Bulletin 192 has a big table of all of these atypical antibodies and their relationship or risk of fetal hemolytic disease. Okay, so Faye, going through again that sort of joke of the basics, let's break it down even further and say, okay, so what actually is owl immunization? Yeah, so um, I mean, before this podcast started, we were joking like, what is the difference between alloimmunization and isoimmunization? I've I been know. using them interchangeably. And it turns out they are synonymous. So that's good that I haven't sounded like an idiot for the last four years. <laughs> so alloimmunization is the formation of maternal antibodies against blood group antigens that the mom does not possess. So for example, an Rh negative mother could develop anti-Rh antibodies, Rhd antibodies, if exposed to Rh positive blood. So in the OB context, this can happen if there is a significant number of erythrocytes from an Rh positive fetus that gain access to the circulation of the Rh negative mother. So hemorrhage sufficient enough to cause alloimmunization most commonly occurs at delivery. And this happens in about 15 to 50% of births. And often only a small amount of bleeding across this interface, as little as 0.1 milliliters, is enough to cause alloimmunization. Wow. Yeah. And only 1% to 2% of alloimmunization occurs as a consequence of antepartum bleeding or trauma. Um, and it has been reported after ectopic pregnancy and threatened abortion and spontaneous or induced, induced abortion as well. Um, and obstetric procedures can also predispose uh, to fetal maternal hemorrhage, um, things like uh, choreovillus sampling as well as amniocentesis and chordocentesis or pubs, or even external cephalic version. So all of these reasons can lead to some kind of hemorrhage that can lead to alloimmunization. I guess that brings us to the next question then, Nick. Why do we care? So alloimmunization is probably something that, I mean, at least in the D alloimmunization, I haven't seen much of in terms of actual consequences, Faye. I don't know about you. Yeah, I haven't either, really. But apparently this was a much more common pregnancy complication historically that has considerably decreased in incidence in the United States and other countries. Um, Pre-1970s, the incidence in the United States was around 13 to 16%, and that has dropped wow. all the way down to 014 to 0.2% today. So it's actually remarkably declined over a hundredfold. And the other thing that's interesting about alloimmunization is that in the United States, at least deallioimmunization is almost completely avoidable with good prenatal care and adherence to protocols. So again, this is something that we really can try and prevent. So what are we trying to prevent? Rh hemolytic disease of the newborn, or some people may refer to it as HDN or HDFN if it's hemolytic disease of the fetus and newborn. How does that happen? Generally, a sensitizing pregnancy is unaffected. So some first event happens and that pregnancy may escape unaffected from disease as antibodies are created in the maternal serum from this first exposure to an Rh positive antigen. Subsequent pregnancies in infants, though, who have Rh-positive blood types will get affected by disease as antibodies against that Rh-positive blood cell in the fetus come from maternal serum and attack those red cells. When those red cells get attacked, they lyse, they explode, and this puts the fetus into a troublesome physiologic state, basically anemia. But that anemia gets so significant that it puts the hematopoietic system into overdrive. 
As you may remember, the fetus doesn't always get its blood cells from marrow. Actually, previously in the fetal development cycle, they come from other organs such as the liver and spleen. And so ultimately what you see is organomegaly of those organs due to shifting of production of red cells there to, again, just try and keep up. As those organs get larger, you see portal hypertension as well as liver failure. Um, and that liver failure prevents you from making other products such as albumin um, that, again, make that blood really leaky, a low colloid pressure that leaks out, causing both high drops as well as a high output cardiac failure. Um, this ultimately can lead to stillbirth. In areas where prophylaxis and treatments are not available, where standard 14% of affected fetuses are stillborn, and up to 50% of live-born infants will suffer neonatal death or brain injury from chernicterus or hyperbilirubinemia in the newborn as a result of disease. So, Faye, kind of the short version is sensitization, anemia, high output cardiac failure, and high drops, stillbirth. And that's why we care about alloimmunization. Sounds like it can lead to a lot of really bad things. Yeah, but fortunately, we can prevent it. Absolutely. So the first part of preventing RH alloimmunization is to know what blood type a woman has. So at the first prenatal visit, you should be tested for one, your ABO blood group, as well as the RHD type, and screened for presence of any erythrocyte antibodies. And this should be repeated with each subsequent pregnancy. So if we assume a negative antibody screen for an anti-D antibodies, RH-negative patients should be considered for anti-D immune globulin, which we all know as Rogam, at around 28 weeks. Since the 1970s, the strategy in the United States has been to prevent RH allen immunization by universal administration of anti-D immune globulin, or Rogam. There have been studies looking at the cost-effectiveness of selective administration based on the partner's blood type versus, you know, universal administration, um, and this has shown that the approaches to be cost-equivalent. So if there is a potential for uncertain paternity, universal Rogam administration has been the favored approach. However, if there is short paternity, you can certainly ask the patient's partner to get their blood type tested as well, and if they are also RH negative, then you can avoid giving them Rogam. Another method is actually doing cell-free fetal DNA, which is actively being studied in the literature and considered to be uh, helpful in reducing exposure to Rogam, which is a human blood product after all. Um, the sensitivity and specificity of cell-free DNA is 99% and 95% respectively. So that's antepartum. Postpartum, you can also give Rogam. And this brings the risk of immunization from 16% when you're not giving any um, immunoglobulin to just over 2%. And randomized controlled trials that examined Rogam versus placebo administration postpartum showed huge risk reductions of 88 to 96% depending on the time period af after the pregnancy study. A single 300 microgram dose of Rogam at 28 weeks reduces the risk of new third trimester immunization even further. And this has been demonstrated in RCTs and in observational studies in the U.S. And since the introduction of universal Rogam at 28 weeks, in addition to postpartum Rogam, RH alloimmunization rates went from over 2% to less than 0.2%. And that's why we see it so rarely today, Nick. We like don't see a lot of these complications at all. Yeah, it's amazing. So in terms of 
when should we be giving Rogam? Obviously, we'll give it at 28 weeks. We'll give it postpartum. But there are also other events during the pregnancy in which we should give Rogam. So talk to me, Nick, about you know what are those things that we should look out for and also in what time frame should we be administrating the immunoglobulin? Yeah, so these events that potentially can cause fetal maternal hemorrhage are referred to as sensitizing events. Um, and rogium is indicated to be given within 72 hours of a sensitizing event in order to prevent alloimmunization. We'll break this down into kind of early pregnancy and later pregnancy. Um, for the first and early second trimester, so earlier pregnancy, in the event of something like a procedure, an ectopic pregnancy that's removed, a threatened or a complete miscarriage or an abortion, the overall risk of alloimmunization is fairly low. Fetal red cell volume at 12 weeks is only about 1.5 cc's, or a 3 cc total blood volume in the fetus. Wow. However, as we said before, only 0.1 cc's of fetal blood is needed to potentially cause alley immunization. So rogium should still be considered. ACOG recommends a dose of 50 to 120 micrograms of rogam for any loss, procedure, or bleeding event prior to 12 weeks, and a 300 microgram dose for events after 12 weeks. By contrast, late second or third trimester bleeding events have more significant risk for alloimmunization as the fetal blood volume is going to be higher. In this case, there's a little bit more work to do. You should obtain a Typen screen as well as a rosette test and a Kleihauer betke test, and these often come together. The rosette test is a qualitative screen that, that can detect greater than 2 milliliters of fetal whole blood in circulation. So by incubating a maternal blood sample with RH immunoglobulin, this binds up any Rh-positive fetal cells, forming rosettes that can then be seen on microscopy. If there is a positive rosette test, the next step generally is to perform a quantitative assessment, such as the KB test or flow cytometry. Faye, tell me a bit about these methods, the KB and flow cytometry. Yes, I'm going to continue calling it the KB test because I can't pronounce the, uh, the the names there. <laughs> so anyway, the KP test measures the amount of fetal hemoglobin that's in the mother's circulation. And so this estimates the amount of Rogan that you need to prevent alloimmunization. Um, the results are reported as the number of fetal erythrocytes in maternal blood per 2,000 red blood cells. So this is often reported as a percentage of fetal red blood cells in the maternal volume or a ratio. So for example, if there's 200 fetal red blood cells to 2,000 maternal red blood cells, it would be reported as 0.1 or 10%. Because the KB test uses a stain looking for fetal hemoglobin, it's less accurate in hemoglobinopathies that increase fetal hemoglobin in maternal red cells. So think of things like sickle cell disease or thalassemia. Flow cytometry uses monoclonal antibodies to detect hemoglobin F or RHD antigens, and so this is very sensitive and accurate in detecting fetal cells in the maternal blood. 300 micrograms of Rogam or one vial is sufficient enough to cover against up to 30 milliliters of fetal blood. So up to eight vials can be administrated every 12 hours until reaching the desired dosage. And fortunately, there's an IV form if you really need large quantities. Um, a classic CREOG question involves calculating the amount of Rogam needed to prevent alloimmunization from a KB test. Um, and so to calculate the amount of Rogam needed to prevent alloimmunization from a KB test, you need to know the maternal blood volume. I'm not going to 
spell out the math formula for you because that would be horrible to hear in podcast format, but we will post it on our website. And so you can take a look at that and do some problems on your own. Um, All right, Nick. So tell me some other important facts that we should know about Rogam. Yeah. So other questions that commonly come up are how long Rogam lasts. So Rogam has a half-life of about 23 days and thus a 300 microgram dose is detectable for approximately 12 weeks in maternal serum. Um, Redosing of Rogam can be held if a delivery or subsequent sensitizing events occur within three weeks or about one half-life of a Rogam dose. Redosing should be more strongly considered after that interval. After delivery or in the postpartum period, given the window of 72 hours for effective Rogam administration, it's reasonable to hold off on redosing it at that point until the RH type results are available on the infant. Obviously, if the baby's RH negative, there's no indication for additional Rogam dosing. So um, save your patients the stick at that point. Um, the last thing you know that we mentioned a little bit earlier is that Rogam is a human blood product. It's collected from volunteer donors who already have high titers of anti-D antibodies. There's no available synthetic or recombinant form of Rogam or alternative medications that are currently available, though some have previously been studied. Um, so again, this may be a challenge, particularly for patients who aren't accepting of blood products. And there is a theoretical, though extremely small risk of transmission of infectious disease via Rogam. Finally, the last thing that I want to mention here is that Rogam, again, only prevents RHD alloimmunization because it neutralizes that RH positive antigen. It doesn't work on patients who have already been sensitized to the RHD antigen. So if you end up with a positive antibody screen and they have anti-D antibodies already, Rogam is not going to help out at all. Again, while Rogam works very well to prevent this, it's not 100% effective, and it also doesn't help with other alloimmunization disorders, so other blood group antigen issues. We're going to talk about sensitization and what to do with these scenarios in our next episode, but for now, Faye, why don't we summarize? All right. So we first started talking about the quote unquote basics of blood groups, which, you know, before all of this, I just thought, oh, there's like ABO and AB. Excellent. Um... But actually, there are over 36 blood group systems for human blood. We most commonly use the ABO system and the rhesus blood group. And within the rhesus system, there's over 40 blood group antigens as well. And the reason we care about this is because it can lead to alloimmunization. Um, alloimmunization, again, is the formation of maternal antibodies against blood group antigens that aren't possessed by the mother. So, for instance, an Rh-negative mother developing anti-D antibodies if exposed to Rh-positive blood, for instance, from the fetus. Um, hemorrhage significant enough to cause alloimmunization actually is most common at delivery, but can even be a small amount, like 0.1 ml. So it's still important, even in the first trimester, to consider the need for Rogam, which we'll talk about a little bit more in the summary later. And the reason we care about alloimmunization by itself is that it can lead to Rh hemolytic disease of the newborn. Um, and because of the development of Rogam, which like I said, we'll talk about uh, later, the rate of alloimmunization has decreased from 13 to 16% of pregnancies pre-1970s to 014 to 0.2% today. Hemolytic disease of the newborn can lead to organomegaly, which then will cause portal hypertension as well as liver failure um, and also high cardiac output and high drops, which can lead to um, fetal death or even neonatal death as well as uh, neonatal brain injury from chronicteris. In order to prevent D 
alloimmunization at the first prenatal visits, women should be tested for their blood type, ABO blood group, as well as their RHD type, and screen for the presence of any erythrocyte antibodies. Assuming that they have a negative antibody screen for anti-D antibodies, patients who are Rh negative should be considered for anti-D immune globulin, or ROGAM, at 28 weeks gestation for prevention and then postpartum for prevention after delivery. Studies looking at cost-effectiveness of administration of Rogam on a universal basis versus a selective testing basis have shown the approaches to be cost-equivalent. So due to the potential for uncertain paternity, you can consider universal Rogam administration for all of your patients. Cell-free DNA testing is another approach that's actively being studied. So Rogam should be given also within 72 hours of a sensitizing event. That is something that could cause bleeding at the fetal maternal interface. Um, In the first or early second trimester, meaning before 12 weeks, there's very little fetal red cell volume, only about three cc's of total blood volume prior to 12 weeks. Um, However, because only a very, very small amount, 0.1 cc's of fetal blood can lead to significant alloimmunization, Rogam should be considered... um, with a dose of 50 to 120 micrograms for a loss, a procedure, or a bleeding event before 12 weeks. After 12 weeks, this dose should be increased to 300 micrograms. In the late second or third trimester, bleeding events have a much more significant risk for immunization because of higher fetal blood volume. Therefore, you can use a rosette test to detect, first of all, whether or not there is fetal whole blood in the maternal circulation, and then use another test like the KB test or flow cytometry to measure exactly how much fetal blood is in maternal circulation. 300 micrograms of Rogam, again, is enough to cover up to 30 milliliters of fetal blood, and you can continue to give more, up to 8 vials, over 12 hours if you need it to cover more fetal blood. Other facts about Rogam include that it has a half-life of 23 days, and so it's detectable in serum, or a single 300 microgram dose is detectable in serum for about 12 weeks. You can hold off on redosing if a sensitizing event or delivery occurs within three weeks of the last dose, but redosing should be more strongly considered after that interval. Rogam is effective for up to 72 hours after a sensitizing event, so after delivery, it's reasonable to hold off on redosing until the infant's blood type is available. And again, Rogam is a human blood product collected from volunteer donors. There's no synthetic recombinant form or alternative medication that's currently available. All right, Nick, I think that brings us to the end of our podcast. So once again, this is Faye. This is Nick. And this has been Creogs Over Coffee. So guys, if you enjoyed the episode today, head on over to iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, whatever your podcatcher is, give us a five-star rating and review. Find us on social media, on Twitter at CreogsOverCoff1, on Facebook and Instagram at CreogsOverCoffee, and if you want to give us some support, go to patreon.com slash CreogsOverCoffee and give us some love. We have show notes for this episode, including that Rogam dosing formula, as well as notes for all of our previous episodes on our website, CreogsOverCoffee.com. And if you want to send us a message or let us know if there are any mistakes in previous episodes or this episode, simply send us an email, creogsovercoffee at gmail.com. 